Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. If you'll open your Bibles and turn to Matthew 24, we're going to be reading verses 4 through 8. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be families, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Please be seated. God is good, and all the time. A week ago, some have begun speculating that the events that are occurring over in Eastern Europe are meant to kick off the end times. And because of that, a lot of Christians are a little fuzzy on the issue itself, and some have been fed information that really just is a little scary for them. And Matthew 24 is one of those passages that's often used to speak about the end times. Uh, However, I want you to open your Bibles and follow with me because I think you're going to come to find that that's not exactly what Jesus was speaking about. There are two important verses before chapter 24 and uh, about midway or through that really shed light on interpreting the whole thing. 2236, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Matthew 24, 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So when you read these passages and when a person reads them and applies them to something such as the end times, they have to be willing to say that Jesus lied. And I don't think that any of us are brave to make that accusation just yet. So bracketed in between these two passages are a lot of information. And the passage that Billy read just a moment ago, when you look at it, he speaks of wars and rumors of wars. And uh, at the end of verse 6, but the end is not yet. Uh, Every time we see language like that, it doesn't always indicate the end times. Uh, It may indicate more the end of a present age or the end of a present conflict. So let's back up. And look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left there upon another that shall not be thrown down. So starting this out, Jesus is, is speaking in reference to all the buildings of the temple. And as you read through, what we'll come to see is that he's speaking about the destruction of the temple and not necessarily the end times. Now, if you were to look at Luke's version of this same story, in Luke 21, verse 20, 
Luke puts it this way. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that the desolation is near. So you compare Matthew and Luke's and Mark's, if he has this version in there, and you're going to see that he's predicting the destruction of the temple. But if you're like me, I have one of those Bibles that has headlines uh, over particular paragraphs. Uh, Headline, I don't know if you'd say that, but like a title. Over verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24, it says, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. And beginning verse 3, the, the, the heading there says, the signs of the times and the end of the age. Some of you may have a study Bible that says something similar to that or a little bit different. And if you have study notes in your Bible, they may speak of this as the end times. Uh, beginning verse 15, the, the heading over verse 15 through 28, it says, the great tribulation. And so you see all these, all these phrases that we, that we see sometimes... We, we go, well, he's, this is a passage about the end of the world, the second coming of Jesus. But when you read it and you study it closely, what we come to learn is that that's not at all what Christ was talking about. So he, he began by addressing the temple. And what we know from history is that in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed by the Roman general Titus and some of his army. But some Jews had retreated to an area called Masada. You should look Masada up. It's real interesting because it's on a high hill, and you can see where the Romans built a ramp to go up there to besiege the remaining uh, fighters. Uh, and, but they all who were there decided to commit suicide rather than be captured by the Roman army. That happened about four years later. And the signs of these things would be verses 6 through 8, that we just looked at, and that was read. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. So these are things that sort of signified when it was to come. But this wasn't the first time that this area experienced disruption. Uh, You may remember when Gamaliel was addressing the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, he mentioned a few of the uprisings that had occurred before Jesus' time. He mentions Theodos, who rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and they came to nothing. And then after this, there was a man called Judas of Galilee, who rose up in the days of the census. He drew away many people after him, And he also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. You would have a group called the Zealots that led the Jewish revolt in A.D. 66 that really kicked off this particular event. And so this group, uh, that was a a thing that, that you see in the first century B.C. and A.D. And even after the temple was destroyed, there are still these little pockets of revolutions, if you will, in the, in, the, in the land. Now, when you think about famines and pestilences, these are the results of warfare. I mean, imagine you have an army coming into an area to occupy it. What's going to happen? They're going to eat up all the food, aren't they? Well, there's your famine right there. And oftentimes, when you've got people coming and going in certain areas, you have death and disease and decay, you're going to have pestilences that follow. And there's also the mention of earthquakes. One of the things that we see in Scripture 
is that the prophet Agabus, he prophesied that a famine was going to come throughout the whole world. And Luke says that that happened in the days of Claudius. That's about A.D. 54, just to give you an idea. But interestingly, at least to me, as you read on down, uh, history records that there were earthquakes. There were earthquakes during the reign of the emperor Nero, who preceded the destruction of Jerusalem. There's a work called The Life of Apollonius and Erosius. It recorded earthquakes in Crete and various cities of Asia Minor. And we note that Jesus says in verse 6 that the end is not yet. Verse 3, if you'll look back at it, and I know we're getting pretty deep and technical, so you've got you to just hang tight. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. So when Jesus replied that the end is not yet, he's replying to the question regarding the end of the age. Not the end of the world, but the end of the age. And we know that great persecutions existed in the first century. Stephen, James, and Paul all met their deaths. Peter as well. There were false prophets that we read about in Scripture. Simon the magician. There was those from Galatia that taught another gospel. 2 Timothy 2, Paul mentions a couple of names, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And John wrote in John, 1 John 4, 1, about false spirits that had gone out. So, you know, uh, there was a lot of unrest and a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, that had been going wrongly. So when you pick up at verse 9, they'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated for all nations for my namesake. Then many will be offended. It's like he's talking about our days, isn't it? Many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures, endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. The end of what? The end of the age. That's what Jesus is focused on. But I want to point out one thing to us. Verse 12. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. <clears throat> All right. When you look at our society today, when you look at our world today, there's a lot of bad things that happen. There's a lot of uncertainty and I know we're all probably a little stressed one way or the other. Some of us have been COVID fatigued for some time now. Others are facing financial burdens due to inflation and the high cost of gas and groceries. You know, I remember when I was a kid, mom and dad had a pretty strict budget. And uh, they budgeted every week $100 for groceries. And I remember going with mom because I would be the little calculator, right? I'd be adding up. So like if something was $7.59, you, you round up to eight because in Tennessee, there's a sales tax of nine and three quarters of a percent. And so you, you round up to try and find a good range where you are. $100 worth of groceries could feed a family of three for a week. 
You can get a gallon of milk, a loaf of bread, and a dozen of eggs, and you've done spent $35. Things are different. And you know what? The increase of wages and Social Security, for those of you on that, it has not kept up with that. So we can, we can see that there are a lot of people who face difficulties and challenges that not all of us face, but that some of us face in one way or another. And then when you take into account all the things that we could say are lawlessness that occur in society and our country around the world, it's easy to become skeptical, to become negative, and to always complain. That's easy to do. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will, will grow cold. Jesus is urging His people, endure to the end for the sake of salvation. Don't let your love grow cold. If there's ever a time that the world needs love, it's right now. It's easy to love when it's easy to love, but when it's difficult, that's when it's most important to love. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. And I love that Paul records what he does. Colossians 1.23, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So by the time he wrote to the Colossians, the church had already spread this message to all the known world. Well, pick up at verse 15 with me. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and I love this, he has it bracketed out here, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there'll be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. When you look at Daniel and the passages speaking of the abomination of desolation, the way that it could be interpreted as to what Jesus is saying is when the Romans have a presence within the Jewish temple, and the historian Josephus, who lived in the first century, records as much. He says, the Romans brought their ensigns to the temple and set them over the eastern gate. And there they did offer sacrifices to them. So bringing in these pagan symbols and setting them up in God's temple, that's the abomination of desolation. A holy place where God's presence dwelled now has been made a temple of idolatry. But let me ask you this question. For those who may think this refers to the end of the world, the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 16. Let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. If it's the end of the world, what good does fleeing to the mountains do? 
If it's the end, it's the end. There's nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. Verses 19 through 20. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. There would be no need for Christians really to fear. Those who were in such states would, however. Look at verse 17. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. How many of you do things on your housetops other than put a roof on it? See, in those days, housetops were flat and they often had canopies on them. And in the harsh summer heat, folks would often sleep on their rooftops. But it's not like ours. Ours are A-framed or, or, you know, has all these squiggles. I, I hated when I worked in insurance restoration having to go up and patch a roof. You know, winds would come, storms would come, blow shingles off. And I remember one time uh, the, the manager and I had to go to this place down in Franklin, Tennessee. Now, those people don't believe in one-story houses. At a minimum, two stories, sometimes maybe three stories. And they don't believe in a very simple roof, but it has a pitch, something like this. I'm not a goat. What do you think I'm going to do? Climb up that roof. So anyway, we put the ladder on the it's fully extended right outside the garage, right in one of the, uh, what's that called? Come on, David, help me. Valleys, thank you. And I tell you, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death that day. We got up on that thing. Now, the manager, Andy, my, he's my uncle Andy, he, he's like a tree squirrel. He just right up there, and I'm, I'm sitting there shaking, you know, one foot in front of the other going up to that thing. And uh, I, I get up. And he has a rope with him because the, the, the side where the shingles are missing is very steep. He has me tie this rope around my waist, sit on the eave, and I'm as close to God as I've ever been. I don't think I've ever been that high in an airplane. And he is swinging on this thing like he's, you know, repelling in the army or something to patch up these areas. I, I guess he had a lot of faith that I wasn't going to let him fall because I was scared if he fell, I was going to go with him. And I was scared. But that, our rooftops today are different than theirs then. So if this is speaking about the end of the world, what good is fleeing to the mountains going to do? What good is being on the housetop and doing it as this, right? So, so we, we got to keep in mind, really, the words of verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. All of Matthew 24, up to that point at least, was a message for the people there. Not for 21st century American Christians, Ukrainian Christians, Russian Christians, or whomever. It was for those people in that time. Now let's look at verses 27 through 31. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, notice verse 29, uh, excuse me. Yeah, 29, he uses the word immediately. Not in the distant future, immediately. This generation shall not pass till all these things are fulfilled. So verse 27, when we read about the coming of the Lord, we have to understand that the coming of the Lord isn't always about his second coming. In Matthew 16, 28, Jesus said that some of those who were standing there would not taste death until they saw him coming into his kingdom. So again, a very localized period of time. And so sometimes the usage deals with a particular trial or some other tribulation. Now verse 29, the language is very similar to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. And Isaiah was describing in that chapter the fall of Babylon. And so Jesus may have intended the meaning to be the same, but in reference to Jerusalem. And you look at the stars, the moon, the sun, these are often used in the Old Testament to speak about earthly powers and, and, and principalities. But the notion of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory, that sounds a lot like the second coming, doesn't it? When we read about the second coming in various other passages that are a lot clearer to understand, they contain language similar to this. Do me a favor, if you're willing, hold your spot right here and look back in the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Because what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 about the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, this is a reference to what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And what we're going to see is that that was not what Daniel had in mind. And so if Daniel didn't have that in mind, Jesus couldn't have had that in mind either. Daniel 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Sound familiar? He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, verse 14 speaks about the Son of Man receiving the kingdom and the dominion and all these things. And he receives that upon coming to the Ancient of Days. Now, I interpret this passage to speak of the ascension of Jesus. And if it references the ascension of Jesus, then it doesn't necessarily reference his second coming. I hope that makes sense. If it's not clear, holler at me afterwards, and I'll try and make it plainer. Sometimes it sounds clear in my mind, but, you know, my mouth, who knows. So when Jesus speaks of coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory... I believe his audience would have understood that reference to Daniel when the Son of Man is exalted 
not when he comes. And so when they see all these things happen, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, the temple destroyed, then they will know, in fact, that this Jesus, whom they have put to death, is both Lord and Christ. Verse 31 The angels with the great sound of a trumpet gathering together the elect from the four winds. Uh, I I have often taken that to mean that uh, uh, it's a gathering of God's people through the word that was preached. Of course, if you interpret it differently, you know, let me know because I would be interested. But there's one thing that I do want to point out to you. The whole notion that world events will suddenly kick off the end times is a misunderstanding of the biblical usage of that phrase, end times. We have three passages in the New Testament that speak of the last days as present. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Peter tells the audience at Pentecost, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. He was referring to his day, that day of Pentecost, when all the apostles were speaking in tongues and nobody could understand. He was referring to them as the last days. What Joel called the last days, this is it. Another passage, Hebrews 1, 1 1-2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has noticed this, in these last days spoken to us by his son. And finally, 1 Peter 1.20, he was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So are we living in the end times? Yeah, we have been for about 2,000 years. You see, the way the Bible uses that, it's not a series of events that's going to kick off the second coming of the Lord, but it's a dispensation of time. The patriarchal period of the Bible was the era from the creation of the world up until the law of Moses was given. The patriarchal period. Then when the law of Moses was given, that's called the Mosaic period. And then when Jesus ascends to heaven, we are in the last days, the last dispensation. And it's not a short period of time. It's not a brief period of time, as you can well tell. It's been quite a while. But things that are happening around the world are definitely horrible to see, definitely tragic. But when we try to read our modern day events back into the Bible, we're not doing it right. That's not how the Bible's meant to be read. We're meant to read the Bible and pull out the meaning of the text, and then if we can, apply it to our days. Because if we did it the other way, I, I, I could make a whole lot of verses say a whole lot of different things that God never intended them to say. So how are we supposed to see these events that are happening? Well, I have my opinion. Whether it should be yours or not, it's for you to decide. I see it as a very clear issue of evil versus good. You have dictators autocrats, and various other rulers who are just greedy. And then you have those who pretend to be righteous, but they're really no better. You know, you could study the events of 
Eastern European history, and everyone's going to have a theory as to what brought this thing on. But the thing is, there's nothing you or I can do about it except what we can do, and what we can do is pray. And if there's any kind of connection we have to that part of the world, we can ask them what we could do to help, and then we could do that. But the thing is, you know, people often quote this uh, quotation by Edmund Burke. He says, all it takes for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. You ever heard that before? It's a very popular quotation. My reply to that is, evil will not triumph because Jesus has risen from the grave. Evil will not triumph because Jesus has risen from the grave. The Chronicles of Narnia, I don't know if you've ever read those books, but at the epic conclusion, C.S. Lewis attempts to express the absolute joy that will come as our earthly lives come to an end and we're reunited with God for all eternity. I want to read you this. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. If you like analogies, I think that's a pretty good one that Lewis gave. So, yeah, I think I've been bothered by this whole thing, too. Sense of uncertainty. You know, what is this going to mean for our forces? What's it going to mean for our nation? What's it going to mean for so many things? And I can focus on that. And I can worry myself in a frenzy. Or I can recite the words of Abraham as he and Isaac went up to the mountain as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son. The Lord himself will provide. I don't know anything else, but I do know that. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come before you, Father, as your people. And I pray, Father, that you would forgive us all our trespasses. We have sinned against you in word, thought, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. And we confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And for these, Father, we... I pray that we humbly repent and that for the sake of your son, Jesus, that you would give us forgiveness. Our Father, we're looking at events on the world stage with uncertainty and maybe a little bit of fear and troubled heart. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe, those who are trying to stay and fight for their homeland, those who have been forced to flee for a safer area. We pray for all the citizens of Ukraine and Russia. 
We pray, Father, that evil would not prevail, but that a peaceful resolution could come about, that a ceasefire of arms would come about. We pray for peace. But we know, Father, that our Lord said that in this world we'll have troubles, but Jesus also told us to not fear because he's overcome the world. And we rejoice that Christ has overcome the world. And I pray that I and all of us could focus on that reality, that he has overcome the world. And that as the scripture says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Let our faith be solely in you, Father, for you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And so for those so troubled, give us peace and comfort. And Father, we want to remember also Lance Harper's father who will have a procedure this week. We pray for the success of that surgery. We pray for the success of his recovery and for positive outcome of what the surgeons will do. We pray that you'll be with Lance and his family. And we pray, Father, your blessings be with those surgeons and nurses and the medical technicians and all who will see after his care. Father, we thank you that we have hope and that we've not been left in a state of despair. And so help us to rest on your promises and help us to lift our eyes heavenward with faith and not be so focused on the matters of this earth that we're overcome with fear. We pray for your blessings upon this congregation, for your forgiveness of each of our sins, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now I will invite you. Churches of Christ, we have a tradition that at the end of every sermon we have a song of invitation, and anybody who wants to respond to that song of invitation is able to do so. It's not a time that we will make judgment or pass judgment, but it's a time that we'll minister. And so if anyone needs or desires the prayers of this body of believers, we're glad to offer those prayers. But if it's a matter that you want to be forgiven for sins, we want to pray with you and for you to God to receive that forgiveness. And if you have never confessed Jesus as your Lord, and if you have never put on Christ in the waters of baptism to have your sins washed away, we certainly want to minister to that need as well. But the invitation isn't the only time that you can come forward. You feel free to holler at us anytime, and we'll be glad to minister to those needs. But if you wish to come right now before this assembly, you can do so as we together stand and sing.